Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoi, and with me as always is that electric pentacle-wielding master of mysteries, Jeff Goat. <laughs> I've been quite a funk today. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> but, but you're showing some pluck now, as we see. <laughs> but even more plucky, we are very honored to have with us our special guest, James Mendes Hodes, best known for being a designer of Thousand Arrows, uh, working on a senior developer for Avatar Legends. You've worked on Frosthaven and Magic the Gathering as well. And you are also uh, very well known as a cultural consultant and sensitivity reader. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, also, perhaps most infamous for the giant robot of offense and orcs on the martial myth essays, which are actually well worth your time of reading. <laughs> so, uh, notorious, infamous, uh, lauded, all of the above. Yeah. Sh- <laughs> shout, out, shout out to my haters. <laughs> <laughs> so, James, uh, it's great to have you here. So uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, secret origin as a gamer and as a uh, reader of uh, fantastic fiction. Oh, so... I think that it all really started when I was a small child with Calvin and Hobbes. I think that of all of the various, you know, I watched cartoons, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, all that. But I think that as a child, my love of speculative fiction started with Calvin and Hobbes. And uh, I joke that I read Calvin and Hobbes when I was six, when I was Calvin's age, kind of before I understood that the jokes were jokes. And just took everything completely seriously. And Calvin and Hobbes, uh, speaking from personal experience, still works under those circumstances. But Calvin and Hobbes is about a six-year-old kid who loves his stuffed tiger and is himself deeply invested in speculative fiction. So I think that I always kind of had this meta vision of speculative fiction, and it came originally from Calvin and Hobbes. And I I think I also very early encountered a lot of other uh, comics and stories that were very culturally grounded. So, for example, I I read Asterix, which is this Mm -hmm. French comic, and it's about French – it's essentially about racial stereotypes. It's about a village of Gauls in Roman occupation, and then they visit all these other countries, and then they see all the other countries' racial stereotypes – Right, and the fondue in Asterix in Switzerland when they keep on getting tasked into the giant cauldron of fondue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And some some of the some of the jokes are better. Some of the racist some of the racist jokes are better than the other racist jokes. Yeah, like <laughs> the African racist jokes are just never good. And I, I think, think it's aged a lot better than Tintin, though. <laughs> oh God, yeah, Tintin I could not do as a child. I tried, I tried so hard, but even as a child, I was like, this makes me uncomfortable, and I don't really understand why in a way that Asterix doesn't. Mm-hmm. And, well, one thing I've learned is if you preface it with not to be racist, but then you're in the clear. <laughs> <laughs> right. I would go further than saying you never need to say I'm not racist, but you never need to say I'm not racist. If you're in that situation, <laughs> you have already lost. <laughs> right, right. right. Uh, I, can't, I can't even read those words without reading them in Liam Neeson's voice anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that's terrible yeah. um, um, but it, that's he, him specifically not that, <laughs> that, yeah. that thing and I'm still a fan but still that's terrible um, yeah. so what led to sort of like the more um, I don't know adult might not be the right word but adult uh, 
uh, speculative fiction and for gaming also what for, what was that well, job when i was a when i was a little kid i i always thought i was into like adult style speculative fiction because i read i think because i read Redwall and they're just like murdering mice left and right also very racist but um so Redwall was very violent and edgy and dark and as a small child i was into that in a way i'm yeah, I'm not sure I'm into it anymore. But then, as a as a high schooler, uh, I got into stuff like Sandman, uh, you know, Neil Gaiman, Terry Pratchett, all that. And I also started getting my hands on role playing game books. But I never had anyone to play with. No one ever actually wanted to play Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Second Edition, which was the books that I could get used in Borders books and music when I was a child. But I read them and I thought about them. And then in high school. In high school, I got into Sonic the Hedgehog fandom, which is the worst fandom. Ooh. And oh, so no. my, <laughs> earliest, <laughs> my earliest serious role-playing experiences, I think, were forum role-play with Sonic the Hedgehog fans. Whoa. <laughs> I can definitely say that's not what I've heard before. Yeah. It's, it, was, it was terrible. I was a monster. <laughs> like, I was literally a monster. Like, everyone else on the Sonic the Hedgehog fan message board had their little fox or hedgehog which had a sprite with a palette swap and i wanted to play as a robert a heinlein starship troopers fan character oh, no <laughs> we're just going through all my problematic faves from childhood so in starship troopers all right although johnny rico is filipino yes yes uh he definitely <laughs> is and uh that made a huge impact on me as as a high schooler it was the first time i'd read a book about a filipino so yeah, so I played as a essentially as a brain bug. I played as uh, an alien hive entity, which and I decided that all of the different universes of Heinlein ripoff bugs and space brains were part of the same universe. So I commanded Tyranids from 40k. I commanded Zerg from Starcraft. I commanded whatever was in Orson Scott card. Right. Right. Yeah, so I've pretty much just read problematic things before adulthood, apparently. Like, we've gone through, like, Card, Heinlein, Redwall, Asterix. Yeah, as soon as you said Orson Scott Card, I was going to say, well, at least he's not problematic. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, it so is the, the, um, the you know, you, the one of the things that you're most well known for is the cultural consulting and, and the sensitivity work. Was that the thing that sort of propelled you or was it a long, was that a long leap to get to that spot? You know, I think, I think I, I definitely feel more confident today as a cultural consultant because I think critically about my problematic faves. I don't really want to tell anybody anywhere to stop liking problematic media just because it's problematic because I don't think that that's a practical reality. I think all media reflects all types of biases and negativities about ourselves out of character. And if we never read anything that was problematic, if we never consumed anything that was problematic, then we wouldn't consume anything. But I think that drawing on our own human ability to engage in cognitive dissonance and simultaneously appreciating things and being into things and being able to take them apart a little bit and also recognize how people with different mindsets and different perspectives might not react to them the same way that we do. 
that's, I think, a really important skill. And that's what allows us to engage with problematic media in a productive way. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm most famous for writing articles complaining about orcs, and I love orcs. I was just saying before the interview started, any game you give me the opportunity to play as an orc, I will play as an orc. <laughs> there you go. And I think that's an interesting uh, thing you mentioned, because obviously there are people who are really pushing back at once you said, uh, you know, in those essays. But like, I feel like they haven't really read it. They just said, oh, the, James just want us, wants us to get rid of orcs. Um, but equally, we see sort of the sort of very, um, this sort of Tumblr leftism, Tumblr activism, where things just all have to be completely smoothed off and rounded, and we can't really have any conflict because that's bad too, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I may be painting a little bit with a broad brush there, but I've, you know, it's, and I don't know to what, uh, extent that's a, a dominant thread, but it's obviously one that's there, you know? Yeah, I think that... So I, I don't want to be too critical of Tumblr because, like I said, I have my problematic origin. I think other people are allowed to have their problematic origins. And I think one of the one of the things about Tumblr is that we're seeing a lot of people who are younger who are getting into these conversations for the first time and they're practicing. Mm-hmm. And if you talk to me about one of these topics when I was in high school or college and I would have been full of bad takes – and I don't know whether oh, they'd have been yeah. the same bad takes as in as you'd see uh, among Tumblr leftists today. But I had to practice and I had to get stuff wrong. And in the process of practicing and getting stuff wrong, I rightfully made a lot of people upset who had to explain things to me or educate me. So while it's easy for me to criticize takes without nuance, and I do have articles like uh, how to change your conversations about cultural appropriation, which are, I think, aimed directly at that kind of uh, discourse that doesn't have any action items coming out of it or discourse that creates media that doesn't actually engage with intense and problematic elements of our own identities in a way that I think we need to as marginalized people. Uh, So I do have stuff that I've written about pushing back against that, but also a lot of people on Tumblr are younger or they're stuck in bad situations. They grew up in a family where everyone watches, you know, one American news all the time. And this is the only chance they get to practice. And when I was practicing, I was terrible too. So, yeah, I think that, well, I have, I have two things to say that the first is I didn't know that Tumblr still existed since it stopped uh, allowing porn. Yeah. (laughs) So everyone left when they didn't have porn anymore. And I was like, why is no one showing me porn on Tumblr? But fine. All right. I'll leave too. (laughs) I I say that as a tournament. Obviously a lot of those people are on Twitter now. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and, and you're right. I mean, it's, it's people, the problem is that because of social media, you're practicing into the whole world, not your social circle of 20, 30 people in your high school. Right. And with, (laughs) and, and, um, and so you, you're making your mistakes in very much in public uh, on what yeah. either side. And, you know, I would assume that there's probably some edgelords out there that, you know, we would be ready to write off. But that, again, if we saw them in real life, I think you had mentioned this even again before the show, are maybe real uh, apparently sweethearts in real life. But they're trying to play, work through their edgelordism. And you can sort of tap someone on the shoulder if they're saying that to you in person. But on the Internet, who are they? You know, so. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. And. And I was I was I was a total edge lord, like 18, 19, 20 years old, and 
I'm really grateful that me at 18, 19, 20 years old wasn't a time where we were all posting our shit online. So, I mean, there'd be so much stuff that I would have said back in the day that would just be destroying me now. And and I I, I almost said, and rightfully, but not rightfully. I, I, I had the right to learn from my mistakes. But the shit that I was saying, I remember just kind of casually in conversation, the stuff that I cringe thinking back at now. Yeah, we've all gone through our own redemption arcs just to be adults. Yeah. And I think the only ones of us who haven't, the mistakes I the mistakes I haven't made are the ones where I was lucky enough to see somebody else make them first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right. Absolutely. And so I think it's, uh, I mean, obviously a lot of this is also, you know, touching on people's like uh, constructed identities. And if like, if I'm not this, then who am I, right? And, and so when you, and that's where you get this real severe backlash. Like I'm a gamer and this, this is what it means to me to be a gamer, even though it's like, no, you don't really need to be, you know, this, uh, you know, uh, fathers, you know, right, exactly. Father, husband, <laughs> gamer, you know, like that always, that Twitter bio that always means like a re- yeah, reply guy, Twitter bio, you know, <laughs> right? So you don't need to be that, you know, you can just be a gamer, you know, in this conversation. Um, all right. So having said that, uh, so James, I mean, along the way, you've also, you're, you're very well read. And, and so what are some books that you would recommend for gamers uh, as sorts of inspiration, whether fiction or nonfiction? Sure. So I think the single book that was most influential on me is probably Mumbo Jumbo by Ishmael Reed. In so many different ways, in so many different realms of my life. But Mumbo Jumbo was written in 1972, and it kicked off both the multicultural movement in academia and the aesthetic movement, which was uh, later in history termed Afrofuturism. So... It's about two voodoo detectives in Harlem during the Harlem Renaissance who have to investigate conspiracies and fight the Knights Templar as they try to find the truth behind a disease that's spreading across America that's making white people talk, dance, and act like black people. Oh my God, (laughs) this is wild. I've never heard of this. Yeah, 1972, Ishmael Reed, Mumbo Jumbo, found it literally while wandering the stacks at my high school. Cool. Do you think he read uh, Chester Himes as a, as a potential influence on him for the uh, uh, Gravedigger, Jones, and Coffin Ed books? As, uh, prob- who is Chester Himes? He was a um, former bank robber turned crime writer, and he wrote by this pair of Harlem detectives who were like very brutal, but also it was like a whole portrait of Harlem. And so that was the... And he also... Um, they made a couple movies in the early 70s of his, and they made that one with um, Robin Givens in the early 90s, which was also one of, based on one of his books, but it's not one of the uh, uh, Grave Dragon Coffins. I feel like Ishmael Murray may have read, but I haven't read Mumbo Jumbo. Yeah. That, no, that sounds, that, yeah. sounds, uh, yeah. that sounds fascinating. And yeah, I, I would not be surprised if Ishmael Reed were very familiar with that kind of thing. All right, so yeah. this week we are uh, reading William Hope Hodgson's Karnacki, the Ghost Finder, uh, which uh, exists in several variations. Um, so uh, what variations is everyone reading this week? Um, I have the Thebes Publishing. I think it's a print on demand. The complete Karnacki, the Ghost Finder ordered this thing on Amazon. Um, yeah, it's, it's it got a bunch of typos in it. It doesn't really have a cover. It's like I think it's kind of vaguely a hallway maybe. <laughs> I'm not really sure, uh, but that is a public domain kind of yeah, cover. It really is. Yes. I also listened to the audible audiobook 
um, that had the first six stories in it. And then um, I listened to the um, other three stories on the horror babble recordings um, on YouTube. Very cool. For the final three recordings. Very cool. For the final three stories. I, I did something similar. I had a LibriVox recording for through my library app for the first six stories. And then I also listened to the horror babble last three and it definitely made me think I should have listened to horror babble for all of them. <laughs> there you go. I had the, uh, nightshade, um, eBooks. Uh, they had printed print them as trade paperbacks. So it's the one that has both, um, both, uh, house on the borderland and, uh, the Karnacki stories and a bunch of other stories. And it is called, hold on. Uh, absolutely has the absolute worst typography though. So I ended up switching to an ebook from Feedbooks, which had all nine stories. Um, but anyway, it's the nightshade one. The typography is utterly terrible in ebook form. So, uh, but it is with the complete stories. Um, so there we go. And uh, I have a high Gaxian word of the week. Um, but uh, James, do you have what one? Mine is really more of a confession. Okay. Bed clothes. I thought this word meant the clothes that you wear to bed. This is not the case. It was not until I was reading the first Karnacki story that I realized, wait, bedclothes are the clothes your bed wears. So like your fitted sheet is a bedclothe. <laughs> so I don't know if anybody else out there also did not know that. And you thought that your pajamas were bedclothes like I did, but now you know. I think we had a similar discussion for... Uh chaise lounge i think at one point for one of our other shows for <laughs> um i picked the word and jeff i didn't even do a count but it must appear at least 40 times in this book funk <laughs> yeah because uh it does not mean what we think it does at least in the context of this book because so we generally think of funk as either uh, a strong offensive smell or uh you know funky music which again is from that same uh, uh etymology but in this case it means to be to become frightened and shrink back, a state of paralyzing fear or a depressed state of mind. So, funk. Fun fact, George Clinton attributes the creation of the P-Funk Parliament Funkadelic mythology to the influence of Ishmael Reed's Mumbo oh, Jumbo. there you go. Ooh. So, there you go. Call back. Call back. And everything's two degrees of separation. There we go. Funk. And then, of course, it's converse, which is pluck, which also appears but nowhere near as much as funk in this book. Also, I'd like to point out the, 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 a word I really liked, and when I Google it, nothing really comes up. So I, I don't know if this is a made-up word or not. Um, but diaphaon, it's on page 135. It says, as it gradually uh, disappeared, I heard a low grunting from the other side of the veil of clouds, which broke out suddenly into a diaphaon of brute sound, grunting, squealing, and swine howling. It's a great word, but when I Google it, like it's... All I can really find is that it's mentioned in other stories, but I can't find a, a definition for it or a pronunciation. All right. I'm looking it up in Liddell and Scott. Okay. D-I-A-F-A-E-O-N. Okay. So in Greek, that would probably be Delta Iota Alpha Phi Alpha Iota. Dia. Yep. I'm not. I opened right to the D-I to the. Um, not seeing anything in Merriam-Webster yeah. either. So, <laughs> yeah. but I feel like it's probably. Oh, yeah. okay. All right. I think this comes from the Greek word, the Greek verb diaphino to show through or to let a thing be seen through. So similar to diaphanously, oh. I guess. Yes, I think. Yeah, same. 
uh, same root as diaphanous. Cool. Um, and yeah, so uh, diaphania is transparency. Uh, diaphanes seen through transparent, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, definitely from diaphano. Very cool. people. This is an audio podcast, but literally while we're talking, James just reached up over his head, and this book magically appeared in his hand. And he <laughs> it. I, mean, I dabble in ancient Greek translation. I'm not very good at it. <laughs> But, but there it was. It's just suddenly that there, you know, very Karnacki esque. Yeah. He had the book in his hand. <laughs> <laughs> so, but here we go. So, James, tell us, what did you think of Karnacki the Ghost Finder? I hate okay. it. <laughs> Fair play to you. This was one of the most boring books I've ever actually finished. <laughs> it has all of the elements that I dislike the most in fiction. Hmm. It has a main character who thinks he's very smart. <laughs> it's horror. It's mystery. And unlike all of the horror that I force myself to watch because it has other good things that I like about it, it doesn't really have stakes. Like the main character is investigating mysteries because he feels like it. I don't think he needs the money because he's always giving his friends wine and cigars and telling him these stories. And then the way that he talks about all of his investigations makes it sound like he's just kind of going on ghost vacations. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and it's very much like a, um, I'm doing this just because I want to have dinner parties and show all of my friends about how wild and interesting my life is. Yeah. Right. So, uh, he also, he also loves to tell rather than show. Mm. He he's describing something and there is not an upper limit to the adjectives that this guy wants to attach to the things that he is doing. So there can't just be a floating hand. It must be a floating hand, which was extraordinarily queer. <laughs> and, and it's it's also it's like Lovecraft at his worst. Right. Combined with Scooby-Doo. Right. Exactly. It's like, oh, this is this is indes- instead of like indescribable or um, inconceivable or whatever it is that Lovecraft says. Right. Yeah. There's that <laughs> Wally Sean. But yeah, right. instead this guy says, oh, it is so queer. It is uh, a most strange or. I wish he knew the word strange. I'm not sure he actually knows the word strange. He definitely knows the word queer. He definitely uses it every other sentence. And it got to the point where I'm like, well, okay, Karnacki, if everything is peculiar, then doesn't that mean nothing is? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, uh, since you brought up uh, Lovecraft, Jeff, because uh, Hodgson is a, a big, uh, I would say influence, but Lovecraft was a Hodgson fan, but Lovecraft yeah. specifically was not a fan of the Karnacki stories. He said huh. that they were... Uh, overwrought and kind of dull. I think it's something to that effect. You know? <laughs> you know? yeah. so that's interesting. I agree with H.P. Lovecraft about one thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so what, if anything, worked for you even in that? Was there any pearls that you could pick out of there? Um, you know, in the sort of fiction sense. You know, we'll talk about gaming, you know, in the second half of the show. So one of the ways that I alleviated my own funk while listening to these <laughs> funk in the sense of a blue funk for I was sad that Karnacki was once again describing the dimensions of a room um, was imagining that he was played by Hugh Laurie 
<laughs> that would work. And that he was delivering everything in the in his the voice that he uses for Bertie Wooster in the Jeeves and Wooster TV series from the 1990s, which is one of my all time favorite TV shows. Yeah, Stephen Fry. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So I think that if this had been if this had been like Bertie Wooster and Stephen and and Jeeves, if it had been like them gallivanting around having very privileged ghost adventures, I think I would have been really into it. I think it would have been really funny, but. Actually, I think I just described the premise of the anime Neo Yokio. Yeah. It's a supernatural investigation anime series starring Jaden Smith, and it's heavily influenced by Jeeves and Worcester. There you go. All right. So we'll check so that out. I, I found a sentence that I think really beautifully encapsulates the, the writing style of this, uh, of this collection. The child went past me running with the natural movement of the legs of a chubby human child. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this, that makes sense. This child looks like a child. Okay. <laughs> Most of the children that I've seen look like children. So I guess maybe Yoda looks really old in some way, but right. he's 50. So Right, right. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, I have to say uh, I largely agree with you, but I think buried in here is that he, I think he has a really – a good sense of the uncanny, but he buries it under all the other crap. Mm-hmm. So that, um, you know, like the the weird mouth in that one story, the jester's mouth right. that sort of appears, or like um, the, the horse's hoof. The, the, yeah, the hog is a phenomenal. I think the, the, the atmosphere, at least, that they're setting up. So whenever the uncanny is about, the imminence of the uncanny, then he's there and he just wished that he would privilege that more in the stories, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and work towards it. Because all these stories also... Uh, as you say, there are no stakes because they all happen at these dinner parties or after the facts. So you know, the Karnaki survived mm-hmm. and that things couldn't have been too bad, right? right. But, but if they were happening at the time, and, and again, the hog appearing out of this netherworld or the, the horse's hoof in the photo that you never know if it's real or not and the sound. And all. So, um, and my understanding is that um, Hodgson, well, he definitely had some sort of complex about pigs because mm-hmm. the hog and um, House on the Borderland um, he apparently had some very bad experiences. He was the son of a sort of roving pastor. You know, a guy would get these uh, parishes for like a year. Mm-hmm. And so he was in different places. So he clearly did not have a soft, he clearly did was not fond of Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's a lot of his, uh, I guess for a lack of word, better word, complexes worked up in here, but uh, they're not explored in the way that even Lovecraft uh, was able to, you know, uh, Whatever else you say, like I, I kind of appreciate that Lovecraft's level of neurosis is right there. Whereas <laughs> it's so sublimated in this story under the sort of like pip uh, pip toodaloo kind of. Yeah. You know. So so I think that um, so a lot of Lovecraft stuff is uh, like delving deep into his prejudices and stuff. And I think uh, I'm not sure that Hodgson is aware of his own or Karnacki's biases. Even though when we look at them, we can definitely tell, okay, this person definitely thinks that Irish and Scottish people are like a different species who exist to weird us out. And women are dubiously people and they're subject to hysteria or fainting or whatever. Like the the female character, the only female character that we see. Well, there's Karnacki's mom. I guess. Right. Yeah, I was gonna say I don't even remember a female character, but you're right. There's Carnegie's uh, mom. Who's the other one? Uh, Miss Higson, the one from uh, the, the 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 one who's haunted by woman. the horse. 
the horse. Yes. And it's okay. still like yes, it's still yes, not. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I, I still think that. So, so that was the only one where there seemed to be any kind of horror that was tied to someone's identity in any kind of like a structural way. And I thought that was a little bit interesting, even though it you know turned out to be a Scooby Doo situation. I thought it was a yeah. little bit interesting because the source of the horror. Um, this horse was attached to a concept of feminine innocence or respectability and the idea that our family's virtues or vices or sins are going to follow us and that we necessarily inherit the uh you know the sins of our fathers etc etc and i was like oh okay yeah that's interesting what are you going to do with it you're going to have a scary horse all right Right, right. I still, I think John, I think John Mulaney did it better. <laughs> well, it's like when we had the big scary hand, mm-hmm. and then we had the big scary mouth, and I'm like, what's next? Are we gonna have a big scary foot? Right. Like, are we gonna have a big scary elbow? Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> we're gonna. What's the next big monster? We're gonna have a pig, right. and clouds, <laughs> and, and I think right. the pigs were the pigs were the only thing where I was like, I'm actually scared of this. Right. Everything yeah, else was like, this is less scary than like a dude with a gun. Mm-hmm. I feel like there were th- there were three parts that really worked for me. Uh-huh. I I liked the way that they dealt with the trapping of the hand. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool. I, I enjoyed that section of it. Mm-hmm. I I don't I, I I don't know that I can actually justify this next part, but I love the whole thing about the powers of reds and purples. Like I don't oh, know yeah. why, but I I yeah. just thought that was really kind of cool, and I was like digging into that part, and then. Um, this is the second William Hope Hodgson book that we've covered in this in this um, in this podcast, and the first was House on the Borderland, which I enjoyed quite a bit more than this. Mm-hmm. But House on the Borderland, what's really fascinating about it is like kind of nothing happens, and it's a novel where nothing kind of happens, but we just get more and more kind of microscopically into the nothingness, <laughs> and I feel like that's kind of what happened in the Hog as well. Like we probably spent probably literally 20, but what felt like 200 pages slowly going down this like magical hog hole. But (laughs) I should have hated that, but I loved it. I loved our journey down the hog hole. (laughs) Well, I think that that story does work. And um, yeah, I think the the hog was definitely the strongest of the stories for me. I got some, some Magnus archives vibes from that. All right. And it's surprising that the longest one is the most effective one. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, and the shortest one is just he discovered a book is a is a is a forgery. I I'm didn't like, why understand did we... why that was. <laughs> he saw a book, and they said there was only one edition, but then there was then another. Else had a copy. Someone right, else had right. a copy, and and then he found out it was fake. Right, right. And then the I, and then he found five quid. The end. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, but Jeff, actually, you do bring up something, and, and um, the hog, and also a house on the borderland, which we talked about. It was sort of like the border between modernity and sort of the gothic mm-hmm. when we talked yeah. about the house on the borderland. And the yep. hog is, I think, also about like anti-creation, or um, there's a Hebrew word for it when you're talking about clip clipoth. I think I'm not pronouncing it right, but I know Ken Haidt likes to play on that a lot, mm-hmm. and um, so he talks. He uses some Hodgson motifs in like GURPS horror. Um, and it's and Gerb's cabal. Um, so the hog, the hog is just like this negation, this anti-creation. So I think that's, uh, but I think Hodgson is not exploring it as deeply. Now, one thing I did read, and I don't, no one's actually said that this is a fact or not, but 
that his most out there stuff, uh, Hodgson stuff, might have been written earlier, like the Nightland and House on the Borderland, and that he became increasingly prosaic. And even though this was published before the Nightland, I mean, um, House on the Borderland by a year, the Karnacki stories, they might have been the last things that he wrote. And it was clear that he was paying bills at that point. You know, was, you know there were six months in a row, you know, in this magazine. Um, and the funny thing about Hodgson is his actual personal biography is so much more interesting than it is Karnacki. way more interesting i looked it up <laughs> right he died Early when a bomb fell directly on him in world war one he was right. killed probably not by the explosion but by the fact that the bomb was heavy right <laughs> <laughs> you know? and he had already been injured like six months before that <laughs> yeah and, and and went back um he'd been a sailor like a, a teenage sailor uh, all these things that are really fascinating. Early, like I said, early bodybuilder. So much more interesting than Karnacki, right? It's like, just write your own life, dude. You know how they say, write what you know? Dude, write what you know, Hodge. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, so I think he was tapping into something, but that whatever, that sort of, the, he was still being held back by this sort of Victorian, you know, Michigas, if you will. Yeah. Um, and I would say I, I didn't hate this. Um, and I, I'm, I'm always happy to let our audience know when I do hate something. Um, and, um, our listeners know that whenever I read a new book in this project, I always rank them in, um, in order from, so every book that we've we've read, I have in order from my most favorite to least favorite. Mm -hmm. And, um, this, this book is, um, 107 out of 126. So that means it's in my it's in my the top twenty of my bot. It's my it's my, it's in my bottom twenty. All right, but All it's twentieth right. in my bottom twenty. Oh, right. so there's still nineteen books we've read <laughs> as a part of this series that I liked less than this. That's a great um, blurb for the back of the book when they finally do another edition. When there's nineteen books I liked less than this. <laughs> Jeff Goad, Appendix and Book Club. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know where I'd put it, but probably in the definitely in the, uh, the you know below the median for sure. Um, so, but actually you had mentioned something, one, one of the things, and I think it tie back to our conversation before the show, which is one of the things that you hate was this privileging of intelligence. And you were going to talk about that in relation yeah. to, to gaming as well, I suppose. And we're at the halfway mark. So let's, let's talk about it. You know? Yeah. So we were talking before the interview started about how nerd culture tends to privilege intelligence and how intelligence is valorized as if there's something inherently morally good about it. And I think stories about detectives are often the worst offenders in this particular regard. Sherlock Holmes being the quintessential example. Uh, I haven't read a, a lot of Sherlock Holmes stories, but the version of Sherlock Holmes that we see in the Robert Downey Jr. movies, for example, and then the Cumberbatch series. Uh, the, yeah, the Cumberbatch is just insufferable. Um. Yeah, and I don't. I, I read the Arthur Conan Doyle stories long enough ago that I don't remember if they were like this, but less so. And there was a, a there's a leavening element of humanity in there, but yeah. but I think uh, the overall trend you're talking about. So, yeah. Do you think that that maybe is in conversation with or response to this idea that strength 
is the thing that makes you heroic and powerful. Absolutely. And that maybe, yeah, that was maybe coming from a place of people who are trying to say, well, no, that's not the only thing that makes you powerful. This other thing can make you incredibly powerful too. Yeah. My intellect. Right, exactly. Yeah, there's this intellect thing that is understood as a counter. It makes sense in counterpoint to the idea that strength is valorized. But both of these things are mostly things that you're just kind of born with. <laughs> um like and they can they can definitely be developed through practice and stuff but it's much easier to develop them if you have other advantages that you're born with like money right yeah. um, money time yeah right yeah. exactly yeah. and uh, you know i wonder whether karnaki would have time to make electric pentacles and stuff if he had to like worry about feeding a family um or if if he were if you were worried about things that were more serious, would he be investigating hauntings that are more serious than like, well, I can't go into this room in my enormous house. Like I was just thinking like, you know, living in a city, right. If there's a haunted room in an apartment, that's a break on rent. Right. So you got to take it. So there's these, I remember there was the the thing where like someone someone told someone else, oh, you need to tear this house down because it's haunted and build a new one. And the other guy wasn't like, I can't afford to do that. He was like, no, but I like this house. (laughs) Although, is it also worth pointing out that probably people have better things to do with their time to sit around and podcast about a a 120 year book? (laughs) No, no, this is this is my bread and butter we're talking about. This is how people find me. (laughs) Jeff, by the way, this, I, is, this is a matter of life and death for me. <laughs> by the way, Jeff, I just remembered there is a scary elbow. It's not in Hodgson's story, though. It's in The Shunned House by H.P. Lovecraft. It's, it's a very... <laughs> remember, Spooky elbow. Remember they, pour the, they pour the acid in the hole because it's a scary elbow. Yeah. But, oh, uh, I'm going to be yeah. a scary elbow for Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, Karnaki's superpower is he's very smart and he has time to read everyone's monographs on ghost stuff and uh so as much as i love the turn of phrase electric pentacle i don't really understand what an electric pentacle is but i did know that every time he said it i was like that sounds kind of awesome i would definitely call a band that (laughs) well and also since every single story is literally it's a dinner party and he's telling his friends this story after returning from town i like to imagine that Karnacki is actually just going out of town, just getting wasted mm-hmm. out and out, like out in the out in the moors somewhere, and then just comes back and tells them like his his latest story that he's made up about his like most recent adventure. Right, and I definitely believe that because in the second story, where he goes to the Irish house, they he plans to polish off like two or three dozen bottles of whiskey between like three guys. <laughs> i definitely yes. went back i oh. was like how many bottles of irish whiskey are you going through and each story ends with him he he finishes his story and then his friends all ask him questions about the parts of the story that don't make sense to them and usually so, he's like i don't know exactly. <laughs> he usually doesn't even know the answer <laughs> <laughs> so i think that supports my theory even further there you mm-hmm. go so uh with all this uh i don't know comedic hijinks what if anything would you uh extract from this to use in a game or to do better hey uh, that thing that thing was only executed 10 percent. i could even execute that at 50 percent. it would be a great game you know uh or something i, I think uh, this 
I think this book is a great counterexample of what not to do in mystery and horror games. And I think that this is actually this is actually a serious problem. And I I definitely am in my um, I'm definitely in my feelings about mystery and horror games because I feel like many mystery and horror GMs with whom I have interacted have uh, sort of led me by the nose through a mystery that they came up with. And I was, they expected this to be almost this like competitive thing where the players collectively had to be as smart as the GM to figure out the mystery. And that's, that's not, um, so games like uh, Trail of Cthulhu and the, the gumshoe games don't work like this. They, in any given scene, you are in, you are guaranteed to find the clue and that's a foregone conclusion. And then it's just a question of how you do it and what kind of resources you have to expend on the way there. But I think that a lot of people are patterning their mystery games directly on stuff like Karnaki. And it implies that in a mystery game, you have to get people to solve a mystery themselves as players out of character. Yeah. And I find that really tiresome because I go to games to relax and sometimes play as characters who are good at stuff that I'm not good at out of character. So if I have to rely on my real world intelligence and resources to solve the mystery, I find that frustrating. I agree with you. And I feel like this kind of lives on a spectrum and on the other end of the spectrum, I'm curious what you think of what I, what I, what I kind of conceptualize as the other end of the spectrum where it also kind of doesn't matter what you do because there there are so many like call of Cthulhu convention games that I've Mm -hmm. played in where it's very clear that there's like a single location that we're supposed to get to, but we really can't get there until like the final hour of the convention Mm -hmm. game. And that's where the real stuff happens and everything else we're doing before then is just kind of, I don't know, killing time while we get clues that don't actually mean anything. And that also kind of feels very cheap to me. So I'm curious. I think that they're both ways. They're both sort of opposite ends of the spectrum of how to deny, how to deny players agency. Yes, they're both the end result of both situations is that players feel like, well, my character doesn't matter and their skills don't matter and my role playing doesn't matter because it's either my out of character mystery solving in a way that's like about the GM's stuff. Um, And then uh, on one end and then on the other end, it's nothing you do and no decisions that you make matter because we're all going to get devoured by the elder gods. Mm hmm. And you also bring up another interesting axis, which is that, um, you know, that axis of like role, R-O-L-L versus R-O-L-E play, you know, that's annoying, but it's a yeah. false dichotomy, but, you know, right. Uh, you know, social skills, right. Do I have to play out every single thing? What if I'm not that super proficient person? Can I just do the role? You know, it's like, <laughs> right. Or is there something, oh, your characters, your character is a barbarian. All right. Yeah. Get in this fencing match. <laughs> With right. me, the GM, you know, <laughs> right, to prove right. that you can win this fight. Right. You know, so that, that kind of, uh, yeah, you know. Um, so, you know, obviously anyone who's uh, playing in good faith will have a sort of a sliding scale and, and kind of know their table. Say, okay, this person wants to play this very glib bard, but they're a little bit, you know, shyer. But, well, you know, you know, we'll let them sort of say, this is what I intend to do and not have them have to speak every single word of dialogue, right? And 
Yeah. Uh, well, and speaking of bard, like I remember I played a bard at some game and I remembered like I said like, oh yeah, my character doesn't like write a song about this thing. He's like, we'll sing it. <laughs> you, excuse me? Like, <laughs> I'm not a bard. <laughs> yeah. Right. I've, I've definitely had GM say like, oh, you're a bard. Well, you're going to have to sing or dance or whatever. Dance, right. monkey, dance. Yeah. And so I guess that brings up one of the big misinterpretations of your work, James, which is that like, um, you, you know, one of your famous essays is, you know, how do I play a character of another race? Right. Mm-hmm. People, and people are just saying, oh, James is saying I can't. Right. <laughs> right. Um, which is not, not the case. <laughs> no, it's not the case. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But, you know, maybe ge- to generalize from that, what is the what are the steps and things that you say, hey, how do I approach playing a thing that I'm not, you know, whether it's for sexuality, race, or any number of other factors. So to, to bring this back to our early conversation about problematic faves I read as a child and the kind of person that I was when I was reading those and the kind of person that I am now, I think the important thing about playing any kind of difficult identity or foreign, unfamiliar identity is that it's an iterative process and you have to get better at it. And your first portrayal is probably not going to be the best. So early on in your experience playing something very, very different from you, play it safe. You don't want to leap straight into playing the most controversial character or the character who embodies certain stereotypes or the character who embodies the most intense things about a certain identity and the kinds of traumas that they are going to encounter, you, sh- you should definitely think about what that would be like. But the first time that you play, for your own sake and for your friend's sake, like start slow. So in that article, one of the things that I put after going through the different kinds of stereotypes that you should just avoid, yes, like first learn all the stereotypes and don't do those. Uh, and yes, I know some of you out there are worried that if you learn all the stereotypes that you'll become more racist and I promise you won't, it'll be just as bad when you trip and fall into them by accident. So definitely learn all the stereotypes and don't do them. And then for your first character, maybe it's going to be a character who's just kind of like everybody else, but also they have this identity that you don't share. And you're going to start out kind of doing that and playing a character who doesn't evoke the most interesting or the most real things about that identity. And for your first shot, that's okay. And then later on, after you feel comfortable doing that and your friends are like, good job, you didn't accidentally say a, do a bunch of racist things, then, <laughs> then you can start building in cultural signifiers, starting with cultural signifiers, which a certain identity would like other people to know about that culture. So, uh, outward facing things that a, uh, for example, a country is proud of doing and that are important cultural arts that, that country wants to share with the world are a good place to start. So, um, maybe it could be a musical style. Maybe it could be a martial art. Maybe it could be a style of cooking. And each of these things, they have their own. Uh, pitfalls and their own stereotypes that are associated with them. And there's another article I have called The Fortune Cookie Incident, which goes into some of the problems that you can run into with cultural expressions that tend to be sold, like food or martial arts lessons. Um, So it's not without danger, but um, after you've 
established your baseline, then you can start to iterate on it. And then you can start to build in these, these new things that represent some other identity. And I think this could also be true even with stuff like strength or intelligence. And intelligence especially because I think that uh, innate intelligence, like the the our raw brain power or something like that, is not usually at stake in situations where people think or say that we're smart, or uh, people say that oh, because you're really smart, you are capable of doing this. A lot of the times when people laud us for being smart or say it made the difference that we were smart, what actually made the difference was that we had the opportunity to practice and iterate on something in the past, and intelligent skills are like that, like investigation. Investigation is a skill you can learn. It's the application of the thing that gives you that sort of, uh, I mean, there's different uh, games will have different systems, but basically the, the gives you that moment in the spotlight. So you just apply that thing at the right moment in the spotlights, whether mm-hmm. it's the, the, uh, influ- the uh, inspiration role or whatever it is, you yeah. know, whichever system we're talking about. So, um, and I think it's part of the GM's job then also then to, um, leave these opportunities in whatever form they may, both informed by the system and informed by the table, uh, you know, the group of players they have to give everyone a chance to, to seize that spotlight. Um, you know, because it's easy to sort of privilege the most um, socially adept players mm-hmm. at the table or the most domineering tables and players and you have to say nope that uh, your turn over there mm-hmm. <laughs> in the corner. And right? I think one of the one of the best ways to make our characters effective in in any rpg like not just in like party based or niche based rpgs like dungeons and dragons um is to look at what the other players at your table are good at look at what kinds of intelligences what kinds of role-playing skills they have and try to figure out how your character can fit into a different niche so uh i like i like playing tactics i like coming up with cool plans that are simple enough for everybody to follow but still seem like they're going to work. But if someone else at the table is already starting to make plans for us, even if I think I'm better at plans than that person, I'm going to step back that part of myself because I, they're, gonna, they're probably going to do that whether I want them to or not. So I would rather find a different place uh, where I can have fun and where I can apply my character skills or even my out-of-character skills. Well, don't you love it when you're a GM and there are five different people making mm-hmm. five different plans? I have fa- I have <laughs> fallen asleep during that process while GMing at the table. I was just like, I, I don't have the energy to tell this person to stop talking. And what? 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 what, what what's, oh, yeah. Are you done planning? No. All right. Maybe I'll nap some more. <laughs> I usually do the uh, Michael Myers. Talk amongst mm-hmm. yourselves. <laughs> what I eventually figured out Get I had to me. do... Um, cause there's a, there's a game that I designed a long time ago, uh, at conventions, which is based on the first RPG book that I ever got, which was the advanced Zones and dragons, second edition thieves handbook. So it's a heist game and there's a planning phase. And I learned that because players are all very smart and they love to plan, the best way to limit that is for me to say, all right, y'all have 15 minutes to plan. And at the end, just give me a outline of your plan and then to physically leave the room yeah oh i like that because i was going to say the thing that i do to call to slow that down i just put mm-hmm. this on the table and once they start and for those listening i'm, I'm holding a, <laughs> i'm holding a little sand time yeah sand, sand timer hourglass. Is that what it's called? hourglass yeah a little hourglass 
Um, yeah, and as soon as I just put that on the table without saying a word, the entire energy changes. Like, oh, oh, okay, okay, we need to figure this out. Guys, what are we doing? What are we doing? <laughs> yeah, it's particularly in the, the live DCC games that always work yeah. really well. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so. that, that, that works better for in-person. Yeah. Because over Zoom, if I just hold this up, that's a little less... <laughs> I mean, it's, it's still... You know, right. it still says something. But. It's not as obnoxious as tapping your Apple Watch and going. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you gotta strike a balance because um, you don't want people to feel when I know that I am under under time pressure. When the deadline approaches, sometimes I become anxious. So I I gotta balance that with my out of character need to leave here eventually. So, uh, you know, speaking about leaving, do you have, uh, you know, we're coming towards the end. Have any last thoughts on this particular book or anything else that you want our listeners to to think about yes, before we... I would love to see the Karnacki the Ghost Finder fan fiction, which makes him interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I think I you'll have to so. write that for us. Or the Karnacki the Ghost Finder fan fiction, which is about everybody else aside from Karnacki who's actually interesting. Like I was... I was super into some of the Scooby Doo guys until they started doing animal cruelty. Right, right. Yeah, the, the, the yeah, horse mask. Fun. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. But what what would be really fun is some um, all of the characters who were unmasked. They come together to kind of defraud, um, not defraud. That's not the right word. Um, to to sh- to show what a fraud Karnacki is. All right. So yeah, his his <laughs> yeah. own. Uh, Injustice League, yeah. Karnacki's Injustice League. Right? Oh, I would love that. All of Karnacki's enemies, there'd be the the, the Irish bad guys, a hand. The oh, other four, Irish bad guys. The other Irish bad guys. <laughs> clouds yeah, on a ship. Right. Just all hanging out around a table going, God And thousands upon thousands of pigs. Right. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and book pirates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> God damn that guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. So uh, are there any particular projects that you're working on that you want people to know about that are coming up? Sure. Sure. So Avatar Legends should be available. Uh, the PDF's available already. And when the print copy comes out, it's been a long journey to actually get that to print because uh, the United States ran out of cardboard. Um, so please get avatar legends and play it when it comes out i'd be very happy about that uh you can check my patreon out at patreon.com slash mndz and if enough of you sign up i'll actually have to update it um yeah it's 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 been a rough pandemic (laughs) for the patreon but we will we will soon return um yeah definitely keep getting magic the gathering there you go Um, and yeah. And where can people find you if uh, you want to be found on social media or otherwise? Yes, I do. Um, please come find me. I am at jamesmendeshodes.com. That's where you can find all of my controversial hot takes on orcs. If you want to tell me that I am the real racist, the most popular place to do that is Twitter. So I'm at Lulavum. <laughs> I am at Lulavampiro. Um, and then if you would like to give me money to continue generating hot takes that's patreon.com slash mndz there you go yeah all right and yeah if you want to if you want to hire me to do cultural consulting or game design or anything like that there's a form on my website also if you're also if you are a child in a high school and you would like to contact me to help you with your high school project apparently that's a thing that i do now (laughs) 
<laughs> that has happened a bunch of times, and it's very heartwarming whenever it happens. But yeah, so if you're if you're a child in high school doing a school project and you want me to help with that, I I'm an easy mark. There you go. <laughs> I feel like there's a uh, well. Obviously, uh, we're, we're just uh, you know winding up our comedic stylings, but there's a longer conversation to be had about when in the process you start talking about uh, cultural consolidation. Early, early too early, possible. early, always early. Yeah. There's no yeah. there's no such thing as too early because the cultural consultant can always say thanks for reaching out later. Yeah. But if you're too late, <laughs> you can't. Right. It's very hard. Yes. yes, earlier you get the cultural consultant involved, the fewer hours. Uh, I have to work, and the fewer hours you have to pay for, and the better everything's going to be. That's one of the I reasons think that's the, I started calling myself. I think that's the misunderstanding, right? They think like, oh, I don't have the funds, but you can just say, hey, can I get a bookmark here for when at a certain point? Yeah, I get to earlier. Earlier is cheaper. Yeah. It takes less of my time and less of your money. So there you go. Yeah, you heard it from the man himself. All right. And uh, as for us, um, you know, if you like what we do, please uh, drop us a note at Appendix N Book Club at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at, at Appendix underscore N. Uh, if you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice, such as uh, Apple Podcasts. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Our patrons are able to join us for our patron book clubs, which we record right before we meet up with our guest. However, this week, we kind of moved some things around. So we actually haven't had our patron book club yet. That's going to happen this weekend. Normally, I would start naming off the people who are in that patron book club, but it hasn't happened yet. So I'm not going to do that. Um, But I would like to give a shout out to some of our patrons. I'm going to pull some names out of the hat here. Thank you to Jeremy Harper, Eric Hicks, Jason White, Jeff Willett. Noah Green, Robbie Fioto, Dama Saklas, Dan Alexander, Richard Ruane, and Joseph Hootman. Thank you all for your support. Also, our patrons get to vote on what books we cover. So and this is our, your fault? This is their fault. You monsters. They did this. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, and, we only gave them a limited selection. So. And by monster, That's I mean true. like a floating hand. <laughs> so. and, and if you really want to know who to blame, Hoy was the one who did pick this as one of the four to vote on <laughs> for this one. So all fingers at Hoy. There you go. Uh, all fingers of the floating hand. <laughs> all fingers of the floating hand are pointing right at Hoy. Uh, so the the winner of episode 132's poll is Scott Odin's A Gathering of Ravens. And for episode 133, we'll be covering Paul Anderson's Operation Chaos. When this episode drops, there will be a patron poll for episode 136. And Hoy, what are the books that we are going to be voting on for episode 136? All right. Our theme is going to be Domo Arigato, Mr. Roboto. So uh, the books will be uh, Isaac Asimov's uh, iRobot, Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, Uh, Stanislav Lem's The Siberiad, and I think we will do... uh, Henry Cutner and C.L. Moore's Robots Have No Tails. Amazing. So there you go. Robots. Cool. Ooh. I'm excited for that one. That's gonna be a, that's gonna be a fun list. A fun, a fun poll. There you go. All right. All right. Well, James, thank you so much for being on the show. This was really fun. Thank you for having me. This is the most fun I could possibly have had with Karnacki the Ghostfinder. <laughs> <laughs> James, it was a total pleasure. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. I hope we get another chance to do it soon. Definitely. All right. Thanks. All right, everybody. Thank you. It's been an honor and a pleasure. See you in the stacks. Read on.
The library is closed. <laughs>